Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 94 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and this is a special edition coming to you from the New York Film Festival and presented by the Empire Hotel. My guest today is Casey Affleck, the 41-year-old Oscar-nominated actor who's been on the scene for more than 20 years now in films including To Die For, Good Will Hunting, Jerry, The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford, Gone Baby Gone, Out of the Furnace, Ain't Them Body Saints, Interstellar, and now Manchester by the Sea, which brings him to this festival. Manchester by the Sea is a drama written and directed by Kenneth Lonergan, the revered playwright and screenwriter with whom Affleck has worked numerous times on the stage, but never previously on a film. In it, Affleck plays a loner of a janitor who unexpectedly becomes the guardian of a teenage boy after the sudden death of his brother. For Affleck's character, this comes with plenty of challenges, not least of all battling memories of his own past as a husband and father. The film proved a sensation upon its premiere at January's Sundance Film Festival, where Amazon acquired it for $10 million. That outfit will release it theatrically on November 18th before streaming it as well. In the meantime, as the film makes the festival rounds, many are cheering Affleck's performance as the best of his career. Over the course of our conversation, Affleck and I talk about his youth in the Boston area with his older brother Ben and their close friend Matt Damon the local casting director who got him his first gigs, the high school teacher who fueled his passion for acting, and the people from the worlds of film and theater with whom he has subsequently collaborated most closely and frequently, including Gus Van Sant and Kenneth Lonergan. We also talk about his best friend, Joaquin Phoenix, with whom he made to die for when they were just teens, and then years later re-teamed on a controversial documentary or mockumentary called I'm Still Here, which he also discusses. We talk about his occasional disillusionment with acting and how working with Christian Bale on Out of the Furnace made him fall in love with it all over again. And, of course, we get into the complexities of his part in Manchester by the Sea, in which his character says so little but communicates so much. So, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. 
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right, Casey, thank you so much for doing this. To begin with, we always... Ask, where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? I think we know where you were born, but... I was born in Falmouth, Massachusetts, which is a little city. I sort of headed out into Cape Cod, and my mother was a school teacher my whole life. And my father had a bunch of different jobs. He was a bartender. He was a janitor. He he worked at—he's a janitor at Harvard University. Mm -hmm. He was— Later in life, he worked at a state-mandated rehabilitation center for guys who they had the choice. You go to jail or you go to, you know, six months in rehab. And right. um, he would help them get their GED. They'd help guys get their high school diploma as a part of putting their life back together. Um, That's right. Now they're both retired. Yeah. And in terms of the kids, it was it was just you and Ben or were there other siblings? Barbara. No, no other siblings. No other siblings. It's just me, man. And how he's how many years older? Three years. Three. So, growing up, did you guys were you guys close? Were you buds, or how was it? Yeah, we were pretty close. It was largely, in my memory at least, it was just the two of us most of the time. Yeah, and just because he's going to come into this a little bit later, Matt Damon also entered the picture pretty early on. Matt, who's a producer on this movie, grew up just three blocks away from me. We took the same school bus to school, and. I have a lot of really embarrassing stories about him, and we'll do that. That'll be another podcast. Right, right. Now, were movies a big part of your life as a kid, or or were you more interested in other things? Movies were a part of my life in the way that they are for any kid, really. I didn't have a super special interest in in them. Uh, I never thought that I would be an actor or a filmmaker in any way. I just never even didn't even think about sort of how movies get made or that people make them. They were just something that I went and saw. And I wish it had stayed that way forever because <laughs> I enjoyed them a lot more then than I do right. now. Being a part of the movies has ruined uh, my <laughs> love for sitting in a dark theater and watching them. Just because you see how it, you know, you're thinking about the way it came together? Yeah, thinking about the way it came together and thinking about the people who made them. It's all, the curtain has been pulled and right. I, I preferred it when there was a just the wizard. So. Yeah. I remember early on, I had there were three or four movies that I saw very, very young, when I was really, really young, too too young, and they were made an in, in indelible impression. Those were The Elephant Man, mm-hmm. The Harder They Come, mm-hmm. um, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Yeah. I remember I saw The Harder They Come. I was with a friend of mine because his mother was taking care of both of us, and she took us to a little theater called Off the Wall in Cambridge and Central Square, mm-hmm. which was a kind of a uh, working class community, mostly African-American, but pretty diverse. Mm -hmm. And um, we went to, it was a few blocks away from my house, and we went there and they were showing that movie and everyone was screaming and yelling and smoking and talking (laughs) back at the the screen. And then in the movie, there is a scene in which Jimmy Cliff goes to a movie in Jamaica and everyone's screaming and yelling (laughs) and talking back at the screen and smoking. And it was like I was in this same theater that right. Cliff was in. Uh-huh. Um, I watched The Elephant Man in my dad's apartment on a tiny black and white screen. He was sleeping, and I was 
sobbing. I was way too young. Mm-hmm. That movie so made a huge mm-hmm. mark on me. And uh, did you ever go to the Brattle? I know that was kind of nearby yeah. you. That was yep. good for old movies. Yep. Yeah, the Brattle's still there. Yeah. And I recently tried to enlist the people behind the Brattle to reopen the Harvard Square Cinema, mm-hmm. which is in Harvard Square and is was the place that I saw a lot of movies, most of the movies in my life. And, you know, Harvard Square is full of young people, college students. And for some weird reason, they've closed that down. And I wanted to get it reopened as a kind of a nonprofit. I failed. Ah, Well, that's uh, it is a great city for movies. They have a lot of nice art houses there. And this is getting a little granular. But let me ask you, who is Patty Collins? Patty was my mother's best friend in college. And she stayed like my mom living in Cambridge, Massachusetts and became kind of the only local casting director there. So when movies came to town, like Leonard Nimoy's The Good Mother mm-hmm. or well there are a few. Field of Dreams. Mm-hmm. There may have been a scene from that. Yeah, or at Fenway. There's a few uh she would bring I had she had children who were my age and were my friends and so We'd all get a day off from school and we'd get to go be extras in whatever movie was out there. And yeah. that was my very first introduction to like to sort of behind the scenes movie, TV making. And really the only thing that I cared about was that I got the day off from school. Like it was 25 <laughs> bucks at the end of the day. And we just sat around eating right. donuts, shoveling <laughs> chunk in our face from the craft service. And that was all I knew or cared about. And around that time, I guess, or starting when you were pretty young, you were you were not only doing extra work, but then it started to graduate into bigger stuff, right? Like before even high school, you were you were acting, right? Well, that's maybe an overstatement. I don't know if I was <laughs> acting. I was I had was given a few sort of here and there kind of jobs, like you get one line in this little weather commercial or one line in that thing, and we all kind of were my little group of friends, yeah. her kids. Me and Ben and our friends, just because she was like the the person casting those things, and she would just throw us little bones here and there. I did something called Lemon Sky mm-hmm. with Kevin Bacon. I was only I was only seven years old. Or this something. is like TV, right? Yeah, TV show on PBS. But that's because it was Patty Collins' husband who was the director, <laughs> and so it, that's how things worked early in my life. So it seems like for not only you, but maybe also Ben and Matt, a, a person who was very important was Jerry Specka. Who's this? Jerry Specka was our high school drama teacher. And why was he a big deal for you guys? He was one of those teachers that um, turns all the students on to whatever it is that he's teaching. It could have been U.S. history, and I maybe would be a uh, his historian now. I mean, it was. Um, I don't remember him actually teaching anything about acting exactly. But he gave me all the tools that I would need to achieve whatever I've been able to so far. But it was mostly just about work ethic and sort of how to prepare. But he was an inspirational guy. Mm. Everyone who was in his class graduated and thought, I'm going to be an actor because I love acting. And I think a big part of it was that they loved Jerry Speck. Mm-hmm. and. I did a play in the West End called This Is Our Youth mm-hmm. about, you know, I was in my like mid-20s mid or something, late-20s, and um, I was still doing the exact same, exact same vocal, physical warm-ups every night before that play that I was that I learned in ninth grade from Jerry. That's great. Yeah. So by the time you graduated from high school, how did you get to the point where you were sure enough that the acting was the 
route you wanted to pursue that you were willing to move out to L.A.? What were the considerations? I just thought it would be more of an adventure. I, I had a friend of mine who wasn't going to college, and I wasn't ready to go to school, and I didn't really know. I, I just sort of thought, this is what I do. I'd done all the plays in high school. I, it was it had become clear I wasn't going to be a professional baseball player, so this was the other thing to do, <laughs> kind of. So we we got a really bought a, a crappy car, and we drove across country, and we didn't know anyone who had done any real work or had any success and I spent most of that year in LA just trying to find an agent Mm -hmm. which I did at the end of the you know sort of halfway through Mm -hmm. although I never got any auditions until the end of the year I got an audition I think only because I was from New England I got an audition for a movie called To Die For Mm -hmm. by Gus Van Sant who obviously I had heard of I did that and now you were just 17 at this point right yeah and can we talk about just how that year, you were ready to walk away at the end of that year, right? I mean, it was not it was not an encouraging year up to that point. Yeah, no. I didn't like it. I didn't like living in L.A. I didn't like the whole process of, like, trying to get auditions, getting an audition. You don't even like the material. You don't <laughs> like the show. There was nothing enjoyable about it. And I, it wasn't with any regret or hard feelings. I thought, okay, well, I tried this, and it's been fun. Now let me go to school. And it, I was sort of just moving through my life without putting too much um, importance on any one step here right. or there. And so I was going to, I was headed back east to go to school. And then I got this audition. I auditioned six or seven times for it, a lot. And then um, casting director was named Howard Fuhrer. And then I met Gus. And then I got the job. And then I went to Toronto to film it in the spring. I became really good friends with Joaquin mm-hmm. Phoenix, who was in it. And it was the best possible first experience because of Gus, uh, such a, a very, very light touch, a mm-hmm. really gentle guy with who sort of finds a way to make everyone feel like what they're doing is their idea, make feel good about themselves and, and what they're doing, and yet still is able to sort of find a way to s- squeeze everyone into the thing so that it works as a whole. Mm-hmm. I'm sure I didn't have any good ideas, <laughs> but it wasn't clear in the film. Right. Not a great performance or anything, but no, at least it didn't good. look like an idiot, a 17-year-old <laughs> idiot. At the time, I thought, like, wow, this is going great. Right. I'm a, I'm a, I can work as a professional actor. Look how much the director likes me. Right. Um, now, when you got that part, were you living with Matt Damon? Yes. Yeah. Because we isn't it just, like, sort of fateful the way things worked out where I think he couldn't do that movie, right? But Gus was impressed enough by him to remember him when... I guess he saw the script of Good Will Hunting, right? He had auditioned for To Die For. I'm not sure why, because I think Gus really had wanted Joaquin from the beginning. Mm -hmm. So, But he definitely, he really liked Matt a lot. Yeah. And then, although strangely, I was back at at school on the East Coast, and they gave me the script of Good Will, and they asked me to send it to Gus. And so I did, because I'd sort of stayed friends with him. And Gus called and said, I'm 70 pages into this script... I, he must have known Matt, but for some reason he called me and he said, is this, this is your brother and his friend who wrote the script? And I said, yeah. And did you like it? And he said, well, I'm not finished, but I do really, really like it. And then he went on to do it. And and you, for the, for just to, because you mentioned being back in school, you, after To Die For, when you'd now had your first major movie, you then went, then you decided, I am going to go to college? Yeah, I, I still <laughs> wanted to go to school. Yeah. I didn't think... I never sort of put all my chips out there as an actor. Mm-hmm. And I went, this is what I'm going to do. And right. I'm going to, 
And I still don't totally feel that way. So at the time, I went back to school, and I was really enjoying that. And um, I didn't want to even do Goodwill Hunting because I was going to have to leave school again. Right. But I felt like it was Gus and all these guys, and so I did do it. And it was it's only a, a few scenes, but it made an impression sort of comedic part right i it was mean the best role in the film yeah it was the best performance by far and in you the whole picture that's why you couldn't <laughs> you couldn't resist the opportunity right to do it so after that though you go back to college and but then you decided so you went back to a different college columbia yeah. right and you eventually though decided i'd rather act Sort. I never made made that decision, but it, that is how it turned out. Yeah. I would do a semester of school. I'd go do a movie. Opportunities kept presenting themselves that were hard for me to turn down. And then, um, and then by then, you know, uh, it was four years or so, and I didn't really have like roots at the school or a group of friends, or I never really did anyway. Yeah. I sort of spent all of my time in their library. Mm-hmm. So then I didn't really feel connected in that way. There's, you know, everyone I a lot of people I know are gone by then, and. I just lost interest and really got more and more invested in the acting. And, yeah. Um, for a while, though, I, I was just reading some interviews and things you did at the time. You were frustrated because for whatever reason, I guess they were coming to you with a lot of teen slasher movies. Yeah. Is it, what, what? How does that, how do they look at you and say, this is the guy we need for a teen slasher movie? I don't know. I, I mean, I'm surprised by the things that they offer me. And now, <laughs> even the good things to think, how right. do they look at me and think this is the guy to play that part? Right. Um, but... I don't look a gift horse in the mouth. Although in that case, I did and decided I didn't want to have anything to do with it. Um, (laughs) I think at the time, they were making a lot of those. That was just the, like, bulk of the parts for people who were 20 years old. Or, you know, every one of those movies had 10 characters in them, and they were all on the poster, and they were all made by Dimension. But I I think I I did one because I had to buy... I needed somewhere to live. I wanted to get an apartment, and so I thought, I'll do this, and... I, and I was young enough that I wasn't sort of thinking that doing those kind of movies would have any negative impact on my life. I it wasn't until a little later that I learned that you kind of go you know go into the movie, but the movie goes into you too right. a little bit. And I didn't I hated the experiences, and I started to realize that people would think of me as that way. And it was just sort of dawning on me late that I should be more selective about what I do, and that it sort of says something about who I am and. Yeah, interesting. Well, so there were two things in 2002, which is not that long after you've decided to come back to this, which I think are do say a lot about you, which was, first of all, 2002 is the year that you did in, in London, which you referenced earlier. This is our youth with Lonergan. So how did you first cross paths with him? I had auditioned for Kenny several times for other little plays of his in, in New York. Never got those parts, and then I was living in Paris at the time with my girlfriend, and I and someone said they're doing this is our youth in London, and I thought, well, all right, I guess it's just a train ride away. I'll try one more time, and so <laughs> I went over there. I I knew the play, I loved it, and um, and London's just such a great place to do theater. So I took the train over. I got that part, and then Kenny said, do you have any? recommendations for other people for to to play the two other parts so i recommended a friend and my girlfriend <laughs> and they both got those roles and the friend was matt Damon, was matt and, and the girlfriend's your future wife yes so <laughs> and that was the beginning of your working with him quite a bit with lonergan and then also the seems like maybe the first movie that you 
really cared about during this now that you're back doing it would have been Jerry. Could yeah. that have been? And what so for that, you not only started it, but you were you guys, you and Matt co wrote it with Gus, Gus right? Yeah. That was an interesting story because we did write a script, but we did Gus did an interesting thing, which was that we would do the scenes, all the scenes over and over and over again. Like we'd we'd, you know, a few takes and then we would do a silent take which is a little bit different than just starting with a silent take mm-hmm. because people are kind of thinking different thoughts or doing different things. But having done the scene over and over again, it sort of gelled. It was just Matt and I in the mm-hmm. whole movie, so we were the only people in the scenes. And um, we were sort of gelled a little bit, and so the silent take had a different quality to it. Sounds kind of pretentious and lame, no, but it's true. No, yeah. And that was an incredible experience. Uh, I watched a little bit of that. I saw one scene of that movie out of context recently mm-hmm. at the Telluride Film yeah. Festival. And I can't believe anyone ever sat through the whole thing. <laughs> I think that it probably works better as a as a whole. As a whole. And it does as a um, one scene, though. If you just lift it out, you think, this is unbearable. <laughs> um, I, it, was, it was all right. It was interesting. You've talked a lot, including at Telluride, about the fact that you don't feel like a lot of people do the need to just constantly do projects. You know, you're going to wait till you see something that you're excited about. So I think most people feel insecure that, oh, they're going to forget about me or whatever if, I, if I'm not constantly doing it. Where did that outlook come from for you? I think having done or early on, not thinking too carefully about which projects I would do and wouldn't do and being having those decisions made out of sort of by necessity usually financial necessity, (laughs) I eventually developed a new kind of philosophy, which was that I would do things that, you know, one ought to only do things that they feel like they're really connected to in some way that they kind of speaks to them. And, and sometimes I, I question that. And I think that probably, you know, you can, Michael Caine has done over, you know, 150 movies or something, and that there's something to be said for just working in the way that if you paint houses, you don't look, you know, show up and look at the house and decide you don't like the <laughs> architecture or the steps, the way right. they're made. You paint the house right. because you're a painter. And that's how you get better, and that's how you earn a living, and that's how you contribute to the whole world going around. And so I should just kind of work constantly. But for whatever reason, that has never felt good to me. So the, the, every time that I've worked, because I just thought, oh, let me just go back to work, it's ended up being a bad experience. And as an actor, you don't have a lot of control over the outcome of the film. You really, so you have to just choose things based on the kind of experience that you hope to have. Mm -hmm. And in that way, it's been a more satisfying, I've had a more satisfying career in recent years because I've looked at projects through that lens. Mm -hmm. However, very often, you know, I would wait so long for something that I really loved that I would be broke and I would have to take the next <laughs> job that was available. Right. And you can see those jobs running th- all throughout my resume, you know, right. usually three at a time before right. you get something good. So, But there are also the ones where it's clear that you, you know, some of these movies might not have happened without you, like, or, or would certainly not be what they were without you, like in 2007 when you had two that I've got to ask you about, the first being Assassination of Jesse James, which... I think you said in Telluride is the one that maybe you're proudest of, of your work. And I just want to ask you what it was about this story that made you feel like, you know, let's trust this filmmaker who really hadn't done that much up to that point. And about the the story, which was 
certainly not the most commercial thing on on the page. What was it that made you passionate enough to play Robert Ford? Well, that's an easy question to answer. But first, let's just say that about like whether or not it's the thing I'm most proud of. Mm -hmm. I w there are two categories in my mind of movies that I've done. The movies that I had a good experience on mm -hmm. and the movies that I had a bad experience on. And whether or not they were good or bad is way less important, you know. And I sort of have stopped watching most of them anyway because mm -hmm. I really like to just focus on the experience that I had. So I don't distinguish between all of the ones in the in the category of movies that I had a good experience mm -hmm. on. Ain't Them Body Saints or Jesse James or Gone Baby Gone or, or um, Manchester by the Sea or... There's a bunch of them, and, mm -hmm. and uh, or Jerry, or um, Die For. So those movies, I think, I'm incredibly blessed. I've had the opportunity to, to do them, regardless of how they turned mm -hmm. out, um, because I like learned a lot on them. I made friends. I I got became a better actor. I had a great time, et cetera, et cetera. But as for Jesse James, I read that book, and I knew in a I instantly, I I first of all I thought like the language was. It's remarkably well written. Ron Hansen is a great writer. I don't know how he's received in general, mm -hmm. but he's probably underrated mm -hmm. because Hitler's niece or Desperados or, or Jesse James's are all like he really can he, he does something for the like American language, mm -hmm. like real American, old American sort of ways of talking. He's got a great ear. And I knew I wanted to do it because of the character, because of the, the language of the book. Then I read the script, which wasn't that much shorter than the book. It was about 170 <laughs> right, pages. Right. And I watched Chopper. And I thought, I, every, there wasn't one thing that gave me pause. Yeah. That movie, was great performances, everything about it, it was, it was just perfect for me. It was exactly the kind of movie I like to watch and had a great sense of humor, but you know, it had a lot going on. In it. And then I met with Andrew and... I said, after that, having seen Chopper, having read the book, having read the script, and having met Andrew, I said, if I can do this job, I'll never ask for, I'll just feel like, okay, great, I got to be a part of one great movie right. in my life, right. and that's, you know, most actors can't say that, and he put me through hell trying to get the job, you know, audition after audition, and after every audition, he said, I'm sorry, you don't have it, and then later... Many years later, he said, I knew that you were the guy in your first audition. <laughs> so it may have been just part of the rehearsal process yeah. starting just to kind of beat me up a little bit. But Andrew is, is really an, an incredibly rare talent because um, he's never done acting mm -hmm. or done some directors who go to acting mm -hmm. classes. He's never done that. He was never a, a writer in start as a writer, start coming up in other areas of film. He's just a pure director who know has instincts like nobody else. He's just got great ideas. And on Jesse James, he was working with people who were like were the very best in all their Deacons. in their departments. Yeah, yeah. And he made everybody better. Yeah. Everyone was sort of did their best work, I feel like, under under Andrew. Well, there's one thing that, you know, when when the movie goes out in the world and, and then you've got all the pundits that, that weigh in, there's often attempts to psychoanalyze parts of the movie that maybe there was not even any thought given to. And in this case, some people were saying this is the story of basically Jesse James, Robert Ford, who, along with Buffalo Bill, were probably like the original celebrities in America because dime novels were the first thing everybody read. And you have obviously had an interesting perspective yourself, with your brother, with all kinds of things on the world of celebrity. Do you think that consciously or subconsciously was a, a draw for you to that movie, just the exploration of celebrity? It's a good question, and you're right that people have talked about the movie in those terms i 
find celebrity very kind of boring topic that doesn't actually go anywhere. Mm -hmm. There's not actually much you can say about celebrity. You can kind of talk about celebrity culture and how sort of gross it is and sometimes how kind of pernicious it is and how it, you know, corrupts this or that. And But, like, at the end of the day, it's a pretty... Even the, the, the topic is kind of shallow. It's, you can't so... And everyone sort of has the same opinions about it. Um, it's <laughs> and like talking it about smoking. Right, you're like, right. it's bad for you. But there are a lot of people that sort of <laughs> right. do it, indulge it. And what else is there to say? Right. <laughs> but that was an idea. I wouldn't say that that was a kind of the some part of any piece of a sort of overarching bigger theme in the movie. But there's a way of looking at that movie that is where you can see that it's kind of about like fame in America yeah, early yeah. on. That same year, at least in terms of releasing the movies, was Gone Baby Gone, and this was Ben's directorial debut. There were a lot of people that were not giving him a lot of credit in terms of now he wants to direct a movie. You resisted, I believe, initially being a part of it for other reasons. What were what were your reasons for not immediately saying yes when he offered you the part? Well... I had known about the project for a while because he was trying to cast it for a while. And then I was in Canada and I was shooting Jesse James and uh, he came up to visit. He, you know, said, well, would you consider doing it? I don't remember resisting it so much as I thought, like, we should just let's make sure we're on the same page and you're not just casting me because you're having a hard time finding someone else to do it, you know. And and I probably should have just said yes, but I sort of tend to overthink and over talk things. So we talked about it quite a bit, the script and the subject matter and the, especially the ending of the movie. And then somewhere along the line, it was decided I was, I was doing it. And we continued to debate those issues. And, you know, Ben's a very smart guy and it's a really good director. And I feel like I knew him better than people did, anyone else did, mm-hmm. especially in the industry. Yeah. And, you know, where people had an opinion of him as being an actor in kind of lousy movies, I had the advantage of knowing that he was actually a very, very, very smart, talented dude, mm-hmm. um, guy. I, I love that movie so much. I don't, I wish that, I think people were still, are still catching up to this day on that one. By the time of Argo and everything, you know, you know you should see this movie if it's a Ben Affleck yeah. directed movie, but that one is still underappreciated and you were great and... But what was interesting is that you have those two movies in 2007, and then you know most people when they you get the Oscar nomination for Jesse James, all this stuff. A lot of people would want to sort of somehow cash in or strike while the iron's hot or whatever. And you decide I'm going to spend the next few years making a documentary or a mockumentary. I don't know how you would classify it about your best friend Joaquin Phoenix. Where? Why was that the next move for you? Well, you can't always make the right decision, you know. <laughs> a lot of people wouldn't have done that, and a lot of people are are smarter than I am. So I, <laughs> that was a result of a kind of impulse of mine to to resist doing what I'm told I should do and do things that are just interest me. Mm-hmm. And I and there were some opportunities that were created by Jesse James. Not that many. It wasn't like every door in town was flung open. It, you know, I think people largely think like the movie didn't do well for one thing, and that really is the, you know, you can be in a, a piece of junk, and if it makes a hundred million dollars, then you have a lot of people sending you scripts. You can be in a, a movie that is, 
you know, as great as Jesse James and it makes $10 million and you get, you know, nothing changes. So <laughs> I did have a few more opportunities, but what I was really interested in doing was that this thing, which was this mockumentary, I guess. And I thought it was really funny. I had the whole time. I thought it was funny. I thought it was a comedy. I thought it was making a rather broad comedy. And when we showed it at the Venice Film Festival, the theater of, you know, a thousand people, there was, I was laughing and one other person was laughing in that theater. And that was Joaquin. <laughs> and I, right then, that was the first big screening. It was the first time I'd ever shown it to anyone because we right. sort of were keeping it under, I, I don't know, I didn't want to just do a million screenings right. around. And, and so I realized instantly, okay, no one's going to like this. So just enjoy the ride. Right. I still think it's quite funny. And it came from a pure place, though, right? You're a Maisel's Brothers like documentary yeah. fan, right? 100%. But now, I guess in this case, the the original idea was what? Let's just... I guess with Maisel's, their, their outlook is let's show people purely exactly as they are, right? Yeah. This was a little bit... This was not the exactly the authentic Joaquin Phoenix just living his life, was it? No, this was a comp total fabrication. Right. But... What if you just have a completely fictional character and then put it into the right. Maisel's, here's we're going to show people as they are. Right. Um, this was not, I'm, I can't even take credit for it. I mean, there are other people that have done this kind of thing from Orson Welles, F is for fake, to, to Andy Kaufman. To I mean, there's a long tradition or medium length tradition of people <laughs> doing things like this. And perhaps it was done better than, than we did it, but I still was... A lot of fun. And the idea was never to fool people. And I don't think it was, I think with, even with Andy Kaufman, um, the idea, there was something else going on other than like to, just to like yeah. pull the wool over people's eyes. It's not, it wasn't like an Ali G, you know, I think there's something that he was really interested in, like the way that people really re react and, and sort of trying to provoke drama instead of writing it. We wanted to provoke drama right. instead of reenacting it did the reception that you described make you more or less anxious to get back out there and direct again to say like you know all right if you don't really like this i can do other things or did you just say kind of like screw it for now I, uh, it's demoralizing when you put two years of your life into something and it was demoralizing but i have a i, I have developed over the years a pretty thick skin and also this sort of ability to bounce back from crushing demoralization <laughs> i've been you know so for whatever reason, probably just something my mom taught me. I can. Mm -hmm. It's pretty easy to say, you know what, fuck him. <laughs> and um, so I was ready to get back. But but it had been years, and I wanted to act again. I also showed the movie to David Fincher early on, mm -hmm. and uh, someone I I really respect, and also is a is a kind of a friend. And he said he met me out for lunch. He said, Come meet me down here at this restaurant. So I. Went down and he said, okay, this is what I think you should do with the movie. No one had seen it yet. And he said, I, I think you should put it in a vault. And I said, a vault? Ah, that sounds good. Like what? I sort of was thinking that it was a, a maybe an alternative distribution method <laughs> or a, like a, some digital effect you can right. do to give it some. I was like, yeah, yeah, let's put it in a vault. Like where do you, who would put it in a vault for me? What does that do? Right. What does a vault do? And he said, no, no, I mean like don't show it to anyone. Lock it up like, right. for 10 years. Sit on it. Don't don't let anyone see it. And I, it took me a long time, a few minutes probably, to process that what he was saying was, don't show, don't show. this movie to anybody. <laughs> and he may have been right, 
I, I, might, I wish I maybe had taken that advice. Didn't make any money anyway. I was like, <laughs> what my response was, I was like, David, I have to recoup my investment right, here. Right. I got to sell the movie. And we sold the movie and then didn't for nothing right. and uh, made nothing. And, and a lot of people were annoyed and sort of pissed off and angry, sort of inexplicably yeah. angry. It provoked an ire that is still mysterious to me. Well, the only thing I could think for, for why that might have been was that just obviously there was some concern, particularly after Letterman or whatever, that Joaquin might actually not be well. And having seen some of what his own family had been through with with just problems, uh, you know, that may be induced by show business. They were, they were just actually concerned. But I, I get what you're saying as well, which is that that's not your responsibility to kind of mollycoddle people while you're trying to do right. a project. But anyway, well, my my response to that is, if people were so concerned, why was why were people at at the Oscars dressing up like Joaquin Phoenix and mocking him? I were mean, this they? Was, oh, I didn't yeah, even realize they that. were like Ben Stiller came out at, and presented oh, yeah, an Oscar yeah, in yeah. costume oh, yeah. as thing. This, if people actually thought this is a man struggling with <laughs> right. addiction or mental right. illness, right. this is not how you want the community no. to support one another. No. Um, when we would go do concerts, people would, and he would sort of melt down or get in a fight with someone in the audience. Those people were plants, but the audience right. didn't know. Right. And they would just videotape it. I mean, I never witnessed any like real, very rarely did I experience anyone to be to respond to Joaquin in a way out of sort of goodwill, yeah. and, you know. Concern. So, again, after a, a couple of years, period, maybe break, you had not acted. You'd done a voice character in an animated movie. You'd done a part in an Eddie Murphy comedy. But basically, you were not really acting on film for a while until Out of the Furnace. And I just wonder, I know you were doing stuff with Lonergan again, which is a, a theme that runs through this. But what was it about that project that brought you back, and why do you you've spoken about it as sort of like a rebirth? So why why was that? Because I hadn't worked for a while, and because when I went when I showed up to work, I was working with Christian Bale, and I I really was sort of had grown I don't know my I, my interests had taken on a different f- focus I guess, and I just wasn't into it, and then wasn't into acting in movies, and then I. Showed up for the first day in the set and I was working with Christian and he's so committed and so great and it just sort of ignited something in me, I guess. And I remembered, oh right, this is, like you can do all this as an actor. There are all these things that you can do, these things that he's doing that are like, it's more than hitting your mark, saying lines that to get through the scene don't make sense. Mm -hmm. You know, there's like a... I guess it is just like when you find someone who's great at at anything, Mm -hmm. it's it's inspiring. Yeah. And that was an intense set, though. I, I actually know Scott a little bit, and I came to the set in Braddock. I don't. I just kind of observed from afar, and it seemed like you got a lot of intense, great but intense actors there doing a story that's pretty heavy. Could you enjoy it at the same time, or was it just you know kind of a dark period? It didn't feel like such a dark period. Yeah. Manchester by the Sea is probably the darkest period. Yeah, in a, a sort of in a professional life on a set, you know, kind of. Out of the Furnace was a grind, I would mm-hmm. say, but all of those people, you know, were every day you show up and either you're working with Willem Dafoe or you're working with Christian Bale or, you're, you know, and it gives you gives you something back, yeah. you know. But, you know, on Manchester by the Sea, I'm like, I think back on that period as being very depressing, mm-hmm. sad period of my life because of the 
subject matter and because and sort of how every scene you know every day you show up and there's a scene that you have to do that requires you to feel that way mm-hmm. and so it's sort of a bummer for yeah. a couple months but even then i would do it over and over again because it's really rewarding and because working with kenny is never a bummer it's always sort of invigorating in a way challenging and he's so smart and all the conversations about the the characters are like it's more like a conversation between two friends about a third friend. It's kind of about like, you always feel like you're talking about real people. And so you kind of learn something about yourself and about psychology and all that. Um, right. So it's an education is happening. Well, you, you anticipate exactly where we're going here because while there are others in between out of the furnace and that, that I, you know, ain't them body saints and her cellar, a lot of, a lot of things that we could talk about. I think this is the one that maybe since out of the furnace, people have, just looked at what you did and and had the strongest response to and in this you said that you usually usually it's sort of a tortured process to decide whether you even want to do a movie but with him it's not in this case is it always with him going to be a yes because you now have such a you know unique relationship or was there something specifically about Manchester by the sea that's that you responded to it'll always be a yes with Kenny yeah. because I have a, a unique relationship with him and Whereby, like I, I know that I will be better than I than I would be if I were left my own devices. Mm-hmm. He's going to make everyone better, and make everyone a better actor in general, and make them better in the movie than they would be with someone else. The writing is as as good as it gets. Period. Mm-hmm. That's out there, and my, you know, for me. Are you um, allowed to stray from it, or like if you, or is it pretty stick to the words? Stick to the words. Yeah. That, that is that is definitely the the rule but that's okay that's mm-hmm. like a challenge in and of mm-hmm. itself you know and making that seem sort of uh natural but it's written so beautifully when such he has such a good ear that it, it tends to have its own rhythm and just sort of roll off also i would do anything with him i mean i've never read anything that he's written that i hadn't didn't think was just excellent right right when you're playing a guy who's as emotionally closed off and kind of nonverbal in a lot of the cases as as this character is, you're, you have to, I guess, draw on other ways of communicating what's going on. And so I wondered, I heard there was rehearsal for this movie, which there's usually not. Was that a period when you could figure out how you're going to communicate what is going on inside this guy when you can't depend on words all the time? Yeah. He doesn't talk about his, his feelings, <laughs> but he has them. He has very, very, very strong feelings, and he doesn't let himself let go of them. Other characters in the movie, there's, they were involved in some way in a, this tragedy, and they're sort of moved through it. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. they've moved on, and and he, as a sort of as a way of punishing himself, I think, is just holding on to all of it. He's containing all of it, and so over the course of the rehearsal and the whole film, really, the conversations were. Let's see, like a water balloon, how much we can fill in without without letting it drop, you know, leak out. So it's just about sort of swelling yourself up with those feelings, and and then bot and then screwing the cap on tight. Yeah, your nephew is played by Lucas Hedges. Your ex-wife, or parts of the movie, still your wife, Michelle Williams. You guys all have pretty explosive scenes together, and even separately with the interrogation and. And then just running into Michelle on the street. I just wonder, was there a scene that you found to be the most challenging? There, there are a lot that we can pick from that must have been hard. But was there one that you 
maybe we're least looking forward to doing and then one that just in the doing actually was the most demanding? I mean, I got fairly accustomed to having to go to work and, and you know, be devastated or, you know, there are a lot of scenes that like, I go to find the, see the corpse of, of uh, my brother. And, you know, that was just like, you spend, spend an hour or two just sort of crying and, and, you know, it's a wide shot. So you're not sort of, uh, he ne- you're never sort of, he doesn't, Kenny doesn't put a bunch of close ups in your character's mm-hmm. faces mm-hmm. to see them and out by paying their end. But that doesn't mean that you aren't, you don't have to just do it just the same. And then there, there's just a whole long string of them and those scenes like that. And so there's none more difficult than the rest, I would say, except maybe for the fire, which I always thought mm-hmm. this is something I don't have any frame of reference for, really, thank God, in my life. So mm-hmm. how, how does this work? And that uh, kind of bleeds into the interrogation scene, right? Yeah. It's, which, is, which is a powerful one as well. But so the last question is just when you first saw this movie and then seeing how people have responded to the movie and to your performance at initially at Sundance and now at all the festivals since leading up to the release, which I think is in November. What has it meant to you to see that you've, you've gotten plenty of good responses, obviously to other things that you've done, but this seems to maybe be at a, at a different level than anything up to this point. Is that, have you been able to appreciate that and kind of soak that in? Well, it's it's better than the opposite. I've yeah. experienced quite a bit of so right. it's um, it that's nice. But you know, I without any like you know false modesty, mm-hmm. there has been a lot of kind of negative or mean spirited things said about me in the press that people don't write about me that much or care that much in general. And the pu- <laughs> like the public, you know, it's not like a the focus of you know that kind of like celebrity focus has never landed on me. And, and thank God. Mm. But there, I've had my fair share of having to deal with someone's, and and I learned to sort of take it with a grain of salt, which means that when people are praising you and mm-hmm. saying how good something is, you have to 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 handle that the same way. Mm-hmm. I think, which is not to like take that also with a grain of salt. Right. So you may not be just as, as as good as they're saying, and and to just sort of keep it at bay a bit, keep the <laughs> you know just sort of keep your eyes on the horizon, think about the next job, and. It's nice that to, I'm really glad that the movie does seem to be being received well mm-hmm. because it was a slog and it <laughs> seemed impossible to get made. Not only did it get made, but now it's a success. And it also s- sends another message that people will go see a quote unquote small drama, mm-hmm. you know, without uh, whoever in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. they're pyrotechnics yeah, or pyrotechnic like movie stars. Right. And that's, that's good. And, you know, because it means that other movies like that get a shot too. I mean, I guess the sort of success of the movie still remains to be seen, but I hope that if it finds an audience, that that would be the the best thing uh, because it would mean that, you know, it'll be a reminder to the industry sort of that like there's an audience for these kinds of movies. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Yeah, man. Thank you. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. 
That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW group. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.